This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing... Present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Julie Levy, an independent scholar who holds two MAs in Ancient Greek and Roman Studies and a BA in Ancient Greek and Japanese Studies. They are currently the program coordinator for the Save Ancient Studies Alliance, and their recent work can be found on the Paisenman blog, Asterion, and the Let's Talk About Myths Baby podcast. We spoke about their interest in learning Japanese and in becoming a polyglot, the hidden struggles of grad students, learning to be okay with leaving academia behind and discovering new passions. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more ancient world content. Enjoy! Hey, Julie, thanks for joining me. And I just want to dig right in. So when did you marginally become aware or really become aware of your love for all things classics or ancient studies, ancient world, you know, all that good stuff? Thanks, Lexi. It's been part of my life for basically as long as I can remember. You know, I had one of those Greek mythology books for kids when I was little and where I grew up, there was a big Greek community. So one of my one of my parents' good friends was from Athens, and she was so proud of me when I learned the Greek alphabet. And then when I went on to take Greek in college, she was very supportive. So um, I feel like it's always been there. I've always had a love of story and narrative and language, and particularly mysterious ancient things. Nice. Did you have a like a like a formative teacher or someone to help you along? Um, I know I had a great sixth grade teacher, so. I'm honestly not sure I could pinpoint a single teacher up until the end of high school where I had for the very first time access to an ancient language. We had a Latin program that started in my senior year. So I took one year of baby Latin and then went straight into college Greek. I was like, well, I can either take Latin or Greek and fit it into my schedule as is, and I'm more interested in Greek. Although I have to say, uh, at university, I met my friend, Andrew Ziggity-Masek, who was my mentor and advisor. I think his love of ancient Greece and the Greek language really 
sat with me. It's still a part of me. And I still say hi to him at all the SES meetings whenever I can. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I love it when, you know, you meet great people who can become friends and mentors and help you out a particularly great professor. So it brings back the memories. So, okay, so once you got to college, though, like, did you kind of have an idea of like what you wanted to study? Or were you kind of just like, you know, this is the first time I'm really doing this. I'm just going to get into everything and hope something comes to me. Oh, I'm one of those people who is interested in absolutely everything. I ended up double majoring in effectively ancient Greek and Japanese, and I did study abroad for both. Honestly, if my university had handed out minors, I would have gotten a minor in Russian lit. So like I study everything under the sun. I just find the world so fascinating. That's really awesome. Okay, so now I have to ask, I mean, it's really common to assume that if you're into classics, then you might either pick up like a minor in art history or like something related. Not that Japanese isn't, I mean, you know, ancient Japan had some really cool stuff, but like, yeah. So can you just, you know, talk a little bit about, okay, so why Japanese? Were you big into anime? I wouldn't call myself big into anime, not by comparison to a lot of my friends, but uh, certainly something that I liked. I honestly think it was the appeal of the language more than anything else. When people around me are saying, oh, the hardest language to learn is ancient Greek, or oh, the hardest language to learn is Japanese, I'm like, well, let's go. Um, And that, I think, is actually a big part of why. And then people will tell me, oh, Sanskrit is the hardest. And I'm like, no, no, you haven't taken ancient Greek. (laughs) I love Sanskrit. Sanskrit is great. But this is kind of how I ended up getting into historical linguistics, is just I want to be the the biggest polyglot dabbler I can be. It's it's a common joke among my friends that I am basically Daniel Jackson from Stargate. Oh. Someone who speaks 24 languages, I wish. <laughs> I have polyglot dreams too. I just really don't think I'm going to actually, you know, be that polyglot who can decently speak more than like two or three languages. Let's be real. I mean, it's always mm-hmm. like, I want to be able to speak like 10. I feel like I have an affinity for certain languages, but some that I, I kind of hear, I'll marginally be like, oh, I'd love to pick that up. I just know it's not going to happen because the joke is, I will say, I don't think genetics has, uh, re- it doesn't really have an impact on this. But my joke with my friends is I think some people are just genetically predisposed to like be able to pick up and really understand some languages better than others. Like, <laughs> I don't know where that came from other than I have a really good friend here in grad school and she just has this really big affinity for the Slavic languages. She was talking about picking up like Serbian. And then she was like, oh, you know, there's some like Bosnian that I want to learn. And I was like, oh, that's great. I can't pronounce like half of the letters with the little accents. And I'm like, that's too hard. Nah, that's too much work. And I was like, I'm great with my romance languages. And she's just like, that's great and all. She's like, I cannot pronounce anything in French for the life of me. Hell nah. So she was just like, the fact that you can do it. She's like, yeah, I just think you're like genetically predisposed to speak the romance languages better. And I was like, you know, all right, we'll go with that. But I'm not really sure that's a thing. So yeah, well, you know how that that actually kind of works. And this is not my linguistic specialty, but like in sort of picking up the linguistics basics, uh, what you find out is that it's actually about what you learn 
when you're young and how you learn to conceptualize language and phonemes makes certain things easier for you. So if you have a basis in a romance language, it's much easier to pick up other romance languages. And if you have a basis in, say, a Semitic or a Slavic language, it's going to be much easier to pick up other things in that region. And part of my drive to seek out the, the most difficult and most different thing I can, like it wasn't intentionally this way, but I think part of me felt that the more different things I took in, the easier it would be to pick up more along the way. So having learned Latin and French and Spanish, I can understand Portuguese okay and Italian, mostly written. <laughs> Like, I don't think I can have a conversation, but like, I can understand it okay. I'm not going to say that I'm fluent in any of those things anymore, but, you know, like, I can get a feel for what's going on. I can sort of skim a written thing and be like, okay, I know what's happening. Maybe I need to look up a word. Whereas when I started to learn Japanese with a very different structure, a lot of languages from that area of the world started to differentiate in my brain in ways that they hadn't before. And now I can distinguish whether I'm hearing Korean or Vietnamese or Chinese much more easily than I could have before. Not that I can cross understand any of those languages because they're not actually all that related in that area. It's just an interesting phenomenon. So you start to sort of like, I can pronounce the the sort of the chet of of Hebrew because I grew up learning Hebrew and that helps me understand things like Arabic even though I have no training in Arabic but like I can differentiate some of the sounds better I can make some of the sounds better but I still to this day have trouble with aspirated consonants in Hindi you know they have a difference between the and the and I can't hear it I can say it, but I can't hear it. <laughs> yeah, my friend, oh, it's so funny. What Everything you're saying, it's bringing back this memory. I had dinner like two, three nights ago with some friends and they were trying to explain something about the Slavic languages. And they were like, okay, there's a difference between the like J and the D. And I was like, I, I don't even know if I'm doing it right. Because they were saying it, they were trying to tell me, but they were also simultaneously being like, well, my accent is shit and I can't really say this. So you might hear a difference. You might not hear a difference. But they were trying to then use like the tennis player, Novak Djokovic. And they were, they were like, okay, well, it annoys me when I hear Americans say his name because they just say Djokovic. And I'm like, but isn't it that that's how it's pronounced, right? And they're like, well, technically it's not a J, it's a J. And I'm like, you know what? Nah, that's too hard. I can't. I'm just going to say Djokovic. I'm fine. You'll know what I'm saying. That's too much work. So there was a really fun thing, actually, when I was living in Japan for my study abroad. I was living with a host family. And at one point, because, you know, they, they're aware that their L and R are actually a, a single letter in between. Like, they're aware that other languages distinguish but they don't really like think about it much except to be like, oh, that's weird. I wonder what that's like, you know? So they're like, okay, okay. So what's the deal with this? And I'm like, this is really kind of sketchy, but you know, the joke in English is that people who can't distinguish that particular sound, instead of saying fried rice, will say flied lice, which is insects instead of food. And I kid you not, both of my host parents were so entertained trying to say it 
that they got so loud that other patrons in the restaurant we were in were like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and the funny thing is my host mother who had lived in Canada for a bit after a couple of tries was able to get it, but my host father never did. <laughs> So it was really funny, um, but like it really is. It's what you what you train yourself to do, and one way that like after childhood that you can really train yourself on things like you know French vowels are a thing. I actually at one point uh, because I was doing like a French competition in high school, my French teacher actually brought in a phonologist to train me on how to say French vowels. Ooh, it was really fascinating, and and so what what you learn doing that is like the position of your tongue and your the roof of your mouth and like you can actually learn to physically shape things you didn't think you could do whoa i i mean i think that's cool in anything and for any language any like foreign language i think that would be awesome to be able to to like talk to someone who could train me to make this sound i just sort of find it entertaining like very entertaining actually that it was for French because I grew up bilingual speaking English and French so that is like the one language that I never struggled in pronouncing or saying stuff because I basically when I was little I literally sounded like a little French girl so luckily that habit has stayed with me and so according to my French friends I still sound decently French if not from France they're like well you could be maybe Canadian or, or some weird accent or you have a half you know French parent or something but well and it's interesting because I grew up not I grew up speaking French not Spanish and yet when I switched to learning modern Greek because it's still to me Greek sounds a lot like Spanish for whatever reason. And I don't know if you've noticed that or if other people have noticed that. Uh, yeah, it, it has it has an interestingly similar rhythm to it and a lot of the same phonemes. So, so like what you'll find looking across languages is that there are certain sound clusters that just sound like X language, mm -hmm. which is why you can have things like uh, Lewis Carroll's nonsense poem, right? frumious bandersnatch what is that well if you're if you're an english speaker you can kind of get a sense even though it means nothing just because of the sounds that it makes yeah so i just i find it interesting because i'd be walking on a street in chicago and then i would like hear people speaking and if i wasn't really paying attention i've definitely made the mistake of being like oh my god i think they're speaking greek wait i want to like go say hi and like impress them with my like three words of greek and so i'd go back and then i'd listen and i'd be like oh that's not Greek. Ooh, never mind. Um, yeah. and, and vice versa. So, and you actually get this in some languages that aren't all that closely related, but just have a similar rhythm. For instance, I speak Japanese. And so when I overhear people speaking Japanese, like my brain perks up, but sometimes they're speaking Korean, <laughs> which is hilarious because of course, um, one of the things that a lot of people know about Japanese is that with sort of one exception, you can't end a syllable on a consonant. Mm. And in Korean, half of them do, right? So you wouldn't think it'd be all that easy to, to conflate them. And yet my brain hears the rhythm of Korean and thinks I should understand it. Um, <laughs> and I've also been told that people who are native English speakers will do this with Dutch. I haven't heard much Dutch spoken, but I've heard that that's a thing. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't say I don't I, I know like two Dutch people and I really haven't 
paid attention. So kind of like now we've established that we're both massive linguistics and language nerds. (laughs) Duly noted. (laughs) I mean, I proudly own that title. So since we both like languages, did you find it easy to pick up all the required necessary languages for classics? Because that is like, what, four or five languages? Um, I mean, five counting English. So that's actually an interesting question for my career path, because I started, like I said, my undergrad was only in ancient Greek, not Latin, which was a big problem when I was going to grad school, because they won't take you without Latin. Sometimes some programs will take you without Greek, but not without Latin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) It's bizarre. Uh, But most programs require both, even for entry. So um, I actually had to pay for a private tutor for a summer to catch myself up on Latin, which wasn't super hard to pick up because like I said, I already had French at a decent level of fluency. I already had some Spanish um, and I already understood the structures that you get in in older Indo-European languages because I had taken Greek. So like it wasn't super hard for me to pick up Latin at that point, especially with the attention of a private tutor. And here's where I'm gonna plug CI, comprehensive input, we use the lingua latina or Berg text and I fell in love with it. I don't understand why dead languages, I'm using air quotes there, don't get taught in a way where you get to read and speak and write in them the way you learn a modern language because you just don't retain it the same if you don't get to do those things. So I'm a big proponent of CI in conjunction with some of the more like structural methods. I think you really have to, if you're going to retain this stuff, unless you are a great memorizer, which between my Montessori education and my ADHD, I am not. (laughs) Um, You really need to use it, to read it, to write it, to speak it sometimes in order for it to really stick. It's so easy for me, even now, after a decade or more of Greek, after After working on a dissertation based in Greek and linguistics, it's so easy for me to lose bits of Greek because I just never had that experience of getting to use it. Definitely. And so when it came time to pick up German, how did that go? (laughs) Well, I've always avoided German because I actually don't like the sound of it. And because I, that's so rude, but it's just something that I had never really fallen in love with uh, the way that I had other languages. And um, on top of that, like my love for stretching to my utmost and learning, you know, completely different things was like, well, German is the closest language other than like Dutch. I don't want to learn that. So I had spent no time on it whatsoever. I ended up taking a, a summer intensive and then taking the the exam basically right after that and then I almost immediately lost everything (laughs) because I'd only taken it for one summer (laughs) like you really just the brain doesn't work that way and I just never use it but what I find interesting now is that with the technology we have a basic understanding of how German works is enough because I can sit there and Google Translate for modern languages is actually pretty good and you can just scan a book page on your phone And if you get to a part where you're like, okay, I actually need this bit, then you sit down with the dictionary and make sure you understand it. 
but like for skimming, which is 90% of what you do when you're reading for, <laughs> for research anyway, don't let people fool you. 90% of what you do when you're researching is skimming. You don't have to read every word of that article, I promise. <laughs> but like when you're skimming, it's effectively as good as like Google Translate is just as good. So I feel like the requirements are a little bit outdated and really I can't imagine why they never taught me modern Greek instead. Like it just, I think it's a shame. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I've, I've heard, I mean, cause I've talked to a lot of scholars about this and it's kind of shameful, right? It's like, we're trying to decolonize the ancient world. We're trying to do all these great steps. And yet I find it quite frustrating that modern Greek just does not, it's not given a place of respect. It's not given a seat at the table. I'm like, we are studying these people's country and we send people every year, a lot of people, in fact, to come research and live here and dig. And we're not teaching it in schools. Like, you know, as a grad student who was really into ancient Greece, did you find that at all? Like, really freaking annoying because I definitely find it annoying I just happened to know that you know I was not going to go on to a grad program so I mean it bothered me but not enough that it was impacting you know my coming here to do research but as a grad student yourself you know did that affect you? It didn't really affect me in that you know I was very much into text and linguistic and narrative analysis not so much you know I wasn't going to end up going on a dig well probably. Um, <laughs> like, so it wasn't, it didn't impact me personally all that much, but the injustice of it kind of sits with me. Like Italian is optional. Like you can substitute it for Spanish. I'm like, really? What? So it's like, if we're going to focus on teaching modern languages and having those be a requirement of the program, I really think that it should be the modern language associated with the ancient culture you're working on. Like, if you're going to go and dig in Egypt, you need to learn Egyptian Arabic. If you're going to go and work in modern Greece, you need to learn modern Greek. I don't understand why that's controversial. One of my programs did have a modern Greek professor, and that made me really happy. But that was my PhD program. And by that time, like it was just, I was already doing too much work and couldn't fit another language in. Oh, that's too bad. I would have loved to, I remember it was quite shocking to me when I was, you know, like a young, naive undergrad. Here I was emailing our, um, our advisor and just saying, yeah, you know, that semester of ancient was super helpful, but I've already made the decision. I'm not going to go on to grad studies and classics so can I switch over and do modern Greek? And I remember being very shocked when I got the email that said, we don't have modern, we don't offer it. We don't have anyone who can speak that here. Like, sorry. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, isn't this a department of classics where you should do all Hellenistic studies up into modern? And they're like, yeah, no. They were like, honestly, the person who goes, who's closest to like the modern era, they're like, mm. Byzantine Byzantine. you want to learn like Byzantine Greek and I'm like no I cannot go to Greece and speak Byzantine Greek I mean I could try but they would probably look at me and be like what the hell are you saying but yeah no that was incredibly incredibly frustrating but can you talk a little bit about your research though because I marginally know a little bit about it but uh for for the listeners though what did you actually end up going to grad school for 
so my focus was primarily on Sappho, um, an ancient Greek poetess, some of the earliest Greek we have. And I fell in love with her poetry as an undergrad. It's just beautiful. Just if you've never read Sappho, go out and get a copy of Anne Carson's If Not Winter. I promise you, you will love it. It's so beautiful. And even the Greek, if you can just listen to someone saying the Greek of it, she's, she's so wonderful with rhythm and with euphonics. It's absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, so I'm digging into this, the Sappho stuff, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And then in 2014, the, the brother's poem got found. And little did we know how much of a mess that was going to be. Um, if you haven't heard the short version <laughs> is that this guy, Dirk Abink, who was an Oxford professor, he published some new fragments of Sappho that were found supposedly in a private collection somewhere. And like, we have photographs of the papyrus that it's on. We have, you know, different people sort of vetting it and transcribing it and trying to translate what we have. And then the papyrus vanishes again into a new private collection. And the scandal begins <laughs> because it really looks like, and I have to say that this is not settled yet, but it really looks like what happened is that Abink stole the papyrus from a collection he was in charge of and then sold it for millions of dollars <laughs> to another, another collector without any of the proper things happening. And now we just don't have access. We don't know where it went. And that really stinks. When things like this happen in archeology, span in ancient textual studies, anything like that, it becomes really problematic because A, people start to doubt the authenticity because they can't verify it for themselves. You know, it's very, very unlikely that this was not a genuine piece of Sappho, just there's enough evidence. But it also means that by studying and publishing on things that are essentially pirate work that are no longer accessible to the public, we are in a way rewarding the people who do that kind of thing. And so it's not, I would love to work on the brother's poem. Actually, I would love to work on, on the new Kipris poem, but I don't feel like I can. Anyway, so back to what I'm doing. <laughs> Sorry for the diversion. Um, one thing I noticed in just sort of really digging into the text in grad school, like I knew I wanted to work on Sappho, but what about Sappho? I mean, people have studied Sappho for millennia, literally. So what I started to notice is that certain forms that Sappho used, both linguistic things, um, pieces of mythology, you know, phrases like the dawn bears, like it, it like this very specific form, which we can mirror in Sanskrit. We have like the exact same words, just, you know, the same cognate version. And then pieces of mythology like the Adonis myth that seem to indicate Sappho was not only working with sort of this same stuff that Homer, whatever that means, was working with, uh, you know, she's not working from the Homeric myths or not only from them. She's also working with 
her close contemporary neighbors of Semitic myth from like places like Phoenicia, just across a little bit of water over into Ionia or Turkey. So I was looking into how Sappho combines these two sort of ancient cultural heritages, which are present in the (laughs) relatively newly, for her time, colonialized uh, Mytilene and Lesbos. Um, She was part of, I think it was the third generation of Ionian Greeks in the area. So there was like a ruling class of the Greeks, and then the people who had lived there for a long time were actually Semitic peoples. So that kind of tells me a lot about what kind of culture Mytilene has, what kind of life a woman there might have expected to live, and this ties in very much to perception of women and myths about marriage, because one of Sappho's understudied set of sets of poetry is her wedding hymns, of which she has a good dozen or more. So that's what I was working on. I also, as I've mentioned, I'm interested in absolutely everything. So on, on sort of the other end, I did a big project on Roman tragedy. So I'm a big Seneca nerd. Um, I spent a good long while working on a paper proving to my satisfaction, if no one else's, that the Roman tragedy in which Seneca features is not actually a production of Seneca himself, the Octavia. And I also, you know, spent a while, like, trying to, trying to figure out why a philosopher like Seneca would make these big, showy, grotesque tragedies, coming to the conclusion that really it was a negative demonstration. Wow. I mean, that all is so cool. And I mean, who doesn't love Sappho? I mean, all I could say is, you know, in undergrad, we we didn't do as much of her as like I, I would have wished to, but because obviously in undergrad, you know, it, it goes really fast. But oh, man, that's it. I mean, it just it sounds like it would have been a great dissertation. And I know you mentioned that you attained ABD status, which for Listeners, if you don't know, that's all but dissertation. It's basically you do all the classwork and take all the tests, but you just don't write the dissertation. So it's not going to be an easy decision to leave a program. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what went into this decision to just leave? And, you know, you know, how did you feel about, you know, having done all of this work, having all this research and then just like not being able to just write the final thing, which essentially is like your first book because these things are long. So it's like, was that was that really hard? Or, you know, at this time, is it just like you didn't want to be held hostage to a decision you made all these years ago? And you were like, I can better put my energy somewhere else. Yeah, I think it was one of the hardest decisions of my life, leaving my PhD program. Um, it was a very long time coming. When I was an undergrad and when I was getting my master's, I don't know if you ever got like the talk, presumably since you didn't want to go to grad school, you you avoided this, but three times I got the talk from professors in classics that said, don't do this. Do not go to grad school for classics. There are no jobs and it will ruin your life. Do not do this unless you will shrivel up and die if you don't. Ah, yes. That's that's actually a paraphrase from one of one of the people who said that they give us the talk when when you declare the major 
uh, actually, at, well, at least at Mizzou, they did. Cause I remember I sat down and I just said, yeah, I want to do this. It sounds like a great undergrad. And then they were like, well, it's great for undergrad. Just don't go to grad school for it. And then proceed to explain like the basics of the talk, but not like deep dive into it. But yeah, familiar mm-hmm. with the concept. Yeah. So I did go out right after undergrad and after my, my first master's, I did go out and, you know, get a nine to five job, try to figure out something else. And I came down on the side of, yeah, I think I will shrivel up and die if I don't. (laughs) So, so having gone through that and then having to turn around and say, I have done the research for this dissertation that is the last thing standing between me and my doctorate, between me and a career in the field I love, and I'm not going to do it. That was rough. Honestly, the beginning of this last school year, I just, I couldn't take it. I had to sign off of Classics Twitter, which is where I, you know, get my my classics, enter enter the the world that I have left sort of thing where I was introduced to you, for example, I had to sign off at the beginning of the school year. I just couldn't take all of all of these people that I knew getting so hyped for the start of semester, talking about issues that were coming up in the second year of pandemic, talking about, oh my God, I love my students. They're great. Like I just, it hurt. I miss teaching. I miss getting paid my pittance so that I could write about this stuff. I I do miss academia, but I'm also unbearably glad that I left. It was absolutely the right call for me. Um, I think it's the right call for more people than they think. Over, over time, I've come to the belief that grad school, at least as it exists right now, is just basically abuse. It is not designed for people who have to live. It's not designed for people who have opinions that fall outside the majority. It's not designed for people who don't want their life to be nothing but putting their heads into the books. And I think that's absolutely wrong. I think it's real easy to get your spirit squashed that way. What led to my decision, gosh, that's a long story, but, but it kind of starts with, it's with the pay right? It's like, you don't go to grad school unless you get a stipend. It would be ridiculous to do that. It costs way too much. You know, uh, a while ago, a couple of years ago, um, about when I was thinking of leaving, another grad student posted about how hard it is to live as a grad student. And someone repeated this like angry talking point that I think a lot of people who don't understand academia really believe. They said, how dare you complain about this? You are in such a privileged position. Other people have to do work and you get paid to sit around. And they don't understand that the pay is terrible. Like, I haven't looked this up, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I am pretty sure that the money that I made as stipend would still have qualified me for food stamps in my state. Unbelievable. It's generous month, generous by grad school standards month to month, but it's a nine month stipend. It does not cover the full year. It is less than 20,000. And I live in Boston, which is one of the most expensive cities in the country. And yes, they cover your health insurance, 
but it's honestly not great if you're living paycheck to paycheck and your health insurance is dependent on the school, you're stuck. Like I know people who being faced with the same situation I was stayed because they needed their insulin. Your job should not hold your life hostage. Like that's not okay. There was a really interesting incident a couple of years ago. I think I mentioned this to you earlier. I was invited to be part of this forum that BU was holding. It's called Can We Talk? And it was about you know, sort of discussions across labor lines and what aren't people hearing. There were senior faculty, junior faculty, adjuncts, staff, and they included graduate students. So I was on the sort of roundup panel. And what was really fascinating to watch was that the entire discussion over the course of the day turned from what they clearly expected to be a more sort of broad discussion to, oh my God, how did we not know that graduate students were getting so shafted? And all of the grad students saying, because you don't listen, (laughs) because we can't speak up sometimes, because we are held hostage in this position, and because we are treated as workers when student services would benefit us, but as students when worker protections would benefit us. You can always disavow graduate workers because they're students. So the mistreatment that I saw over my collective eight years in graduate school included everything from sexual assault, sexual harassment, Title IX abuse, racist comments being brushed off, people being dragged around and forced to do work that they didn't have time or resources to do because otherwise they would fail class and drop out. I have seen all sorts of things, and I'm not going to say that all of it was one school or another because it really wasn't. I've seen this in multiple grad departments and not even just ones that I've been in. You see it at the conferences. You see it really running a rotten core through, and I'm sure it's not just the classics world, but that's what I have the most experience with. And meanwhile, my friends who've been through STEM graduate school are talking about how it's an explicit pyramid scheme, because in order to stay employed, you need to get grants. In order to get grants, you need to have big projects. In order to complete big projects, you need postdocs. In order to have postdocs, you need graduate students to support them. In order to support graduate students, you need undergrads to support them. And so... That's just how it works. It's a pyramid scheme because there aren't more jobs at the top. It's so messed up. I mean, this is not the first conversation I've had about how our system treats grad students and how terrible the conditions are. And I think a lot of people outside of academia really, you're right, they don't know about it because obviously everyone's like rushing around trying to hide it because to feed the scheme, right? You need to get more people into the beast. So then you're like, no, 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 no. We have to make it look great. We have to make it look good. We're going to hide all this. So then we get more people to come in. And then only after we have them, they feel like they've been tied into this decision that they can't leave. Do you finally like realize, oh, wait, this actually really sucks for me, for my mental health, for everything. And so kind of, like, yeah, it's hard, but coming out of that, I mean, so can you clearly just say, you know, you almost, do you find more fulfillment and are you substantially happier? Do you find 
being an independent scholar where you do have resources like Classics Twitter, where you can feel you can stay involved, but it's also you're outside of this pyramidal like scheme where you have the freedom to like do what you want and, and really take on this more like public advocacy role. Like, do you feel more freedom in that? Absolutely. I mean, you've hit the nail right on the head. You know, as soon as I left my mental health, I felt like I was recovering from an eight year long disease. Like I really recovered who I was in a lot of ways. And that's so sad to say for something that I love so much. Like there was so much good in my time in academia, but I have to acknowledge the bad. And grad students are the most vulnerable to mental health problems. It's, there have been studies on it. It's just ridiculous how common it is for grad students to be suffering poor mental health because of all those conditions, because they're paid almost nothing, because they're expected to live their work, because they are hostage to it and can't necessarily voice any complaints. And the more marginalized identities you have, the harder it is. Are you disabled? Well, that sucks for you. Are you ESL? Well, that sucks for you. You know, like it's just, there's so much piled on. And then once I left, you know, I thought in some ways that my life in classics was over, but it wasn't. I've been able to go on being on podcasts like this and like, let's talk about Myths Baby. I did an episode on asexuality in Greek mythology. That was a lot of fun. I've been able to be on SCS panels still. Um, the Society for Classical Studies is the sort of the big organization. I get to talk about my random interests like archaeo gaming, which I know you have a series on on here, a little blog post for Paizo Men that just made me feel really good. Uh, <laughs> and so I get to do you know, what I've been thinking of forever as sort of classics communication in the way that like Carl Sagan did science communication. I get to talk to my friends and to the public about what you can learn from a video game about the ancient world and like yeah you can actually go and play phoenix rising and here are the things that are right you can actually go and live in some little segment of the ancient world for a bit you know i had a conversation with my mother yesterday when she was telling me about this book where there was this this conspiracy theory like it was some subplot i don't i don't really know but she was like, I just don't know how much of this is rooted in fact or in fantasy. And so this conspiracy theory was that there was a missing muse, the 10th muse of uh, sculpture and painting. And I just started laughing because, of course, as, as you will probably have realized, the 10th muse was Plato's name for Sappho, <laughs> which is my particular area of interest. So... <laughs> You know, it's it's fun to be able to talk about that in a way that people relate to. It's fun to know that I can explain Hades, the game, to my friends and be like, look, they're talking about Orphic mythology here. This is an actual real thing. They didn't make up Zagreus, I promise. It's very cool. <laughs> So I, you know, through classics, Twitter, through podcasts and projects, I find myself doing the work that I've always wanted to do and found myself unable to do because you can't do public outreach as a dissertation. 
you can't do like I thought about writing a textbook and I thought that would be a great dissertation they won't let you do that that's not acceptable which seems ridiculous <laughs> like who do they get to write the textbooks in wait a minute that's probably why all the textbooks are ancient now <laughs> how old is that Ann Groton <laughs> It, like, I love hearing the sense of freedom that you get. And I mean, I did notice coming out of my undergrad and then, you know, getting that nine to five job where I didn't use my major. And then I was kind of like, well, what the hell did I just go through learning all this stuff? It's like now just what a passion, a hobby thing. You know, I was like, how do I get involved? How do I stay involved? And it does give you so much freedom because if your thing really is public outreach and open access. We can do that kind of work. I mean, it's part of why I have the podcast, which is awesome. But do you find it also quite limiting? Because sometimes in certain aspects, I'll want to be in on a thing or something sounds great. And I'm like, oh, this would be the perfect opportunity to, to say something or have my voice heard, or I want to use this bigger platform. And because of the nature of everything is so locked behind gatekeeping of you have to be in academia, you have to be at least in a PhD program, you have to be this, that, or the other thing. It's like, you can't do it. And it's almost like, you know, you hear the word independent scholar and people just go, oh, you're one of those absolutely marginal wannabes. You know, it's like, uh-huh. how do you deal with this? Like, I want to go to this freaking conference because they're talking about blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, I know exactly what could be said in a non-traditional way. You know, it's like you can talk about archaeogaming at so many different conferences, but they don't, that's not acceptable for like in proper academia. So it's like, how do you deal with that? I personally have been really lucky because I have been involved with Classics Twitter, where a lot of the scholars that I want to work with, you know, live and breathe their sort of like all of the conference stuff. And because my decision to leave grad school, not coincidentally, uh, happened alongside the pandemic where everybody was remote anyway. I continue to be invited to conferences. I've been able to speak on an SCS panel because they know who I am, because they know why I left. And why I left in the end, I don't think I even mentioned the final straw for me, was when BU decided that it was going to try to force all of its graduate students to teach on campus the first year of pandemic when we didn't have any protection. And their uh, generous offer was to put you on unpaid leave if you couldn't. It was absurd. So I, I tried you know, I tried to do sort of a collective action thing and you know we built a lot of momentum. but in the end, the university just, it didn't listen to us and that was the last straw for me. So people know that about me and people know that I am a, a big activist, that I'm, I'm very dedicated to education, that I have, you know, I have people that I know in academia who if I can't get access to a resource, which is very common now that all of my library access is alumni only, I can usually get somebody to help me out and, and find a book for me. But not everybody has that. And I think that if, if I had decided to leave a couple of years earlier, before I was on academic Twitter, before the pandemic and everything was online, I think that just really wouldn't be the case. Uh, I've seen so many times when an independent scholar is treated like not a scholar. And I've seen times when it's true, like they have no academic training, but they 
just want to be, but they don't have access to the resources to do it themselves. And why not, right? What point is there in gatekeeping this knowledge? And I really think it's just elitism. It's just elitism. And I don't think we have space for that anymore. I don't think we can pretend it doesn't exist. So while I have been very lucky so far, I, I'm also very aware that it's just coincidence. Like it just happened that way for me. And I don't know if it will continue to be the case. You know, in a few years when things aren't still being run by the people I know directly, will I still be welcome? I don't know. These are all really great questions because I guess the next one I was going to ask really is, you know, that's one thing I think that I was definitely noticing as an undergrad who chose not to go into this sort of cutthroat business, not even attempt to do it. That's like a lot of resources that, you know, someone like myself or other people in my position are going to really come up against. I mean, SES doesn't really, no one knows my name. No one knows who I am. Um, you know, ho hopefully I'll know enough people in the future that that will change. But in the meantime, it's like, yeah, there's like panels that I've seen them doing projects that I've seen them doing. And I'm like, you know, I really wish I could, you know, get on that. I could do that. And you know, that it's kind of the same thing for a lot of other institutions. I'm currently in a different non-classics grad program in Athens, Greece right now, but with all my classics background and knowing people in grad school, like I'm right near the American School of Classical Studies in Athens and I'm right near the British school and they're doing all these cool lectures. Some of them have resumed in like being in person, just, you know, with restrictions. And there's all these great opportunities that I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this would be great. I don't have access because I don't know people. I'm not, I can't even be a member at the American school because I'm not either on one of their programs or working with an American university who would be here on an affiliate program. And so I was kind of annoyed the other day because I was like just Googling around. And I was like, well, how do I do anything other than just be like a random supporter of the mission? And that's like not a thing. So, you know, what, what advice would you give to people who are in my position, young academics who might be like, all right, I want to go into public advocacy about the thing. I don't want to like do the thing as the job because that will like actually, you know, slowly shred my soul. So I'd much rather stay on the periphery and do what I can in this realm. But it's like, yeah, without that, what, what, like, what do we do? So I've got kind of two thoughts on this. Um, the first one is there are more friendly people in these institutions than you than you would think. And if you contact individuals, you're more likely to hit on somebody who will say, oh, of course, I've heard your podcast. I, you know, I know that professor that you took undergrad with. If you want to come to this thing, I will get you an invitation. Absolutely do personal outreach and, and let your personality come across. You don't have to put up a face. Anybody who's going to treat you badly for being what what you choose to be is probably not a good contact anyway, so don't worry about it. This is one thing that I feel like kind of contradicts the advice that I often got as a graduate student, where you're constantly trying to play nice with everybody so nobody, you know, ruins your chances or doesn't ruin a future job prospect, but I've never found it to give me anything good. What you really want to do is just go ahead and say what you mean say, you know, I'm not going to be a graduate student, but here is what I do. Here is what I'm interested in. Here is my background. That's what I want. And you're much more likely to find somebody who will 
take you in. And I do have to recommend Classics Twitter as a resource. It's been incredible for me. Hashtag Classics Twitter will get you seen. And there are a lot more resources now than there were even a few years ago. There is a group called Sportula that does microgrants for anybody, any undergrad or sometimes independents, depending on the situation, interested in classics. Like they can help you get books. They can help you go to a conference. There are other grants that are coming up for independent scholars. There are people who are looking to talk to you if you are not part of academia or just starting out. So there are a lot of new opportunities coming up and a lot of them can be accessed through Classics Twitter. I'm sure there are other venues that I am too much of an old fart to really understand. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't be shy. Look for, look for resources wherever you're at. Look for someone to meet you where you are. And the other thing is I didn't manage to change my institution in the end, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think there is a growing movement of people both inside and outside the ivory tower who want it to change who want grad school to be a place that is accessible, that doesn't hold you hostage, and that doesn't shred your soul, as you say. And so if you are thinking about it, talk to professors who want that. Look for institutions where it's possible, because the more minds that are working together on this, the more people that are moving in that direction, the more likely it is that someday Grad school won't be that. And that's, in the end, what I really want. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, absolutely. The, the main takeaway for me, at least, is that like there's a space for everyone. You just have to find what that is, find your sweet spot, carve it out, and just like don't be shy about going straight for that. If it's non-traditional, it might even be arguably healthier for you mentally. <laughs> possibly you know <laughs> I'm not gonna sit here and make that claim absolutely but I'll just sort of maybe put that out there yeah um no I totally agree um I think there has been far too much what I call power creep in in sort of the academy and jobs both and they kind of feed off of each other and it can't sustain itself it's going to break and I think where it's going to break is that we're going to stop seeing higher degrees as required because they just can't be. So like, you know, in a few generations ago in America, you might have been able with an undergraduate degree to get the highest paying jobs. You can't do that anymore. Now you need at least a master's, probably a PhD, and sometimes you even need a postdoc. And now we're starting to see at the same time this corporatization of the university that puts most people going into the academy as adjuncts, which are the Uber drivers of the academic world. Pay is abysmal, possibly worse than grad students, uh, depending on where you are. There is no guarantee of health insurance. At least grad students get that, you know. And you might be running around between three different universities in the same town just trying to make ends meet that's no way to live and it's going to break. People can't sustain that. If you have a vision of what you want to see, don't let people tell you that there's one path to get there. 
go your path and make them make way for you. Absolutely. Definitely. And, you know, just really quick here, you know, what would you say to the young, I, w- I want to say more like idealistic person, because I, I definitely knew people in undergrad who, you know, when I would ask them, okay, well, what do you initially, like, what do you hope to, to do in your academic career? What do you want? And they say, oh, I want to be, I want a PhD. I want to get my PhD in classics and I want to be a fancy doctor. And I go, okay, that, that's nice. So you get a nice title, you need to live. So like, what do you intend to do? And they don't really, you know, they kind of say, oh, well, you know, I'll figure it out. You know, it, it's, it'll be hard, but it'll be fine. And then basically kind of like, un, it, it's kind of like uh, peeling the layers of an onion where you get to through these conversations with certain people. And I was noticing there were definitely two, three people I would talk to who it seemed like they're, they didn't really have any kind of plan other than I know I want the respect of being called doctor and I don't want to go to medical school. So like, this is the other alternative. What do you say to people who are like, adamant? I'm going to go, I'm going to get my PhD and I'm going to, you know, damn it. I'm going to be a doctor. I don't care what comes next. You know, what do you say to people who are just doing that? Take some years off, go work elsewhere, go do something else. See what you're, see what you actually want because you don't want the respect that comes with being an underemployed doctor. You don't, because nobody respects that. The people who would respect you just for having the title will think you must have done something wrong not to be getting paid millions. Because like we talked about earlier, you know, that article, people have this idea that if you're if you're a doctor, well, you must be getting paid the big bucks. You must be the liberal elite, which we all know is bunk. So if you're not that, well, what are you? And most of the time, you're not going to be that because there aren't the jobs. So my advice to people who don't know what they want is to not pour all of their resources into something that takes years of toil. Go figure out what you want first. You can always come back if it's the right thing. I think that's really good advice and I will say that's literally what I did I graduated um, from undergrad and I didn't really know what I wanted to do I mean I it wasn't going to be classics but I was still just like I don't know what I want to do and if I love classics I can come back to it and uh, absence does not make the heart grow fonder I was away from classics for two years and you know being on the periphery and you know being connected through classics twitter for me is enough doing the podcast where I get to talk to people, you know, from all over the world who study and, you know, share interests with me. That's enough. And that's something I never would have learned about myself. I think if I'd been like adamantly just, no, I'm pushing right on, you know, I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to just do the, do the path that we think is just kind of spelled out for us that we have to do you know, I've been noticing this, this attitude of, it's almost like people don't feel like they have real control over their path, right? Where it's just, you hear young grad, young, like undergrads come in and say, oh, I know the path, I have to do this. And then I have to go to, I have to go to grad school and I've got to get a master's. I've, then I have to get the PhD and then I have to put my ears in and do this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, no, you don't have to. You think you do because that's what everyone else did because that's kind of like, the path they want you to do so you can be exploited. And 
learn that you don't work like a machine. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of it is down to how we treat people before they leave high school. Like it used to be high school was the end of the line for your, like, you need to do this academic track. And I think that there was a lot of merit in that because, you know, you've spent 18 years at that point working through the basics, getting your feet. And then it's like, well, now you have to choose what the career path for the rest of your life. And you have no idea because you've never been out there. Right. I don't think that most people have that real notion of what they want to do. And a lot of the people who think they do have it imposed on them either by like a trusted authority or by media. Like they don't have a realistic idea of what it means. I know I didn't. And I still chose to take a year off. That was the thing that I was worried about. It was like, I don't know. I think I know, but what do, what do I know? I've been in school for 18 years. So not everybody's life path is going to follow this one trajectory. And I really think it's limiting for people to come in thinking they know exactly what they want to do. No, some people do. Every once in a while you find one. I've seen it happen. So I can't say it never happens, but it's really rare. Yeah, for sure. You know, this has been such a great discussion about, you know, just like the feel where it's going, how you stay connected, the troubles of grad student. And so I kind of want to shift over to something just a, a little more on the positive side, because, you know, yeah. it's <laughs> like it's really important stuff that needs to be said. And, and I'm so happy that you've come to communicate this because I think, you know, it's been said, but it's not been said enough and it could always, you know, be said more. But to the to the nicer parts of academia, because it, I, I think you'll agree, not all of academia, not the, the not every part of the whole academic experience has been miserable and terrible. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it was a tough choice, even after all that nonsense for me to leave. And exactly. not just because of the sunk cost fallacy. There are things that I still miss. Oh, exactly. And so, you know, the, the first one I'll start with is um, when you were either or both in undergrad and grad school. Did you go to office hours? I did actually, not often, but I did. I wasn't one of those students who like became the professor's best friend. I never, I never quite got a feel for doing that. But especially as a graduate student, I just, I learned the value of, if you have a question, go ask. It's incredible to me how powerful that is. And uh, as a teacher, because I got to teach for five, six of those years, I love teaching. And one of my favorite things was when students would come to me in office hours and say, I have this crazy idea. Like, that's the best thing. I love it. Tell me your crazy idea. And maybe it is crazy. Maybe, maybe we need to walk it back. But that's where, that's where learning comes from, right? Is passion is interest and like we wouldn't do this if we wouldn't shrivel up and die without it you know it's learning is fun learning should always be fun I was saying I'm a big proponent of CI and that's kind of why you know I want learning about this stuff to be enjoyable I want this work to be enjoyable and that's what I found in doing, doing outreach and, and, you know, doing more sort of lay explanations of the things I used to, to dig into is I love it. 
I'm having so much fun right now. This interview has been great. I want to welcome new people into this passion of mine. And every time a student comes to office hours, there's an opportunity. But a lot of undergrads I know don't understand what office hours are for because professors don't tell them. No, strangely, they don't. They just say, come talk to me and then like leave it um, like ominously. And so, yeah, no, all through undergrad, I just, I had like friends who would never go. And I was like, well, are you like scared to go? And, you know, of course you have the, I'm not scared. I'm not scared of anything. I just don't want to, like, why would I do that? Like go talk to like this, like older person who it feel it, it, like, I understand the feeling of like, it feels a little unbalanced, like, you know, just cause you're like, Oh, you know, I'm a young kid and you know, they're older, got life experience. They're teaching me and I get it. It's awkward maybe for all of two seconds, but uh, I, I wish, I wish people would say more. You know, it gets talked about when we talk about pedagogy, um, which I thankfully had a lot of chances to do with, there was a a group among my cohort at my last institution and also just generally on classics Twitter, we talk a lot about progressive pedagogy, essentially, um, and trying to actually make the resources useful for undergrads instead of just having the same old resources that have always been there and they think they're walking into Indiana Jones's office where they have to be like, oh God, you're a famous person. I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, no, we're just people. A lot of us now will take the time to say, look, my office hours are for you. Those aren't for me to get to know you. Those are for you if you have anything that comes up after class, if you have anything that you're concerned about, or if you have an idea, like come and talk to me when you want to. And personally, I will always say, and if you don't feel comfortable, email me. And that I get a lot more and get the occasional email from a student saying, you know, so I wasn't sure about this, is this the right direction? And you know that if I hadn't said, you can email me this, they never would have thought to, even though my email's on the syllabus, because it's not something you do with your high school teacher. It's not something you do in middle school, but you know, university is a whole different ball game and you're so much more independent and so much more self-driven. And oftentimes nobody tells you how. Nobody tells you how there's no roadmap for there's no roadmap certainly for undergrad. When I first started my MA program in September, I was like, no one taught me how to be a grad student. I was like, how do you how does one MA like, you know, I think I had to literally Google reading strategies for grad like school because I was like, they're assigning me more than I could humanly read, which mm-hmm. just feels like like a mean joke because I'm like, I want to learn this stuff. I just can't read like a thousand pages for like three classes and like, you know. See previous comment on skimming. Nobody tells you that. I'm going to tell you that. No, yeah, no one, no one says it's acceptable. Also, I've learned one thing is like definitely, I definitely learned this was Okay, anyone who says that they did all the reading is lying. There's no way. (laughs) There's no way you can do all of it. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, you know, showing up and being like, all right, truthfully, I got through, uh, you know, four of these articles because each article is like 15 pages, you know, I was like, and I had to do reading for two other classes, you know, how much did you, you know, get through? And I had someone just be like, oh, I got through everything. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, that's um, a thousand pages, 500 pages. Like, really? You got through all of that. 
and then read for the other classes uh-huh sure mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, plus plus the stuff in other languages and <laughs> you're not gonna tell me you translated all of that freaking catullus poem in one night no uh-uh i no Oh yeah, no, with classics, I, I absolutely assume when you when you have programs that do multiple languages, like, and with long translations with, I mean, yeah, I would like have a friend who was super honest about how she couldn't get through everything. So she had to pick and choose because she was like, yeah, I'm gonna be straight up like this translation for this small ass paragraph took me like five hours because I wanted to do it right. And then, you know, you have this other person who's just like, oh, I buzzed through that translation, you know, it's done in two hours. And I'm like, uh-huh, mm -hmm. tell me about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Right. Here, what you'll find is that a knowledge of how the language works will serve you better than having translated the poem, just in general. Like, it's yeah. it's not going to be possible to translate every line of every piece that you come across in your readings. So learn the language. And this is my frustration with how it's taught, right? So we're taught to translate, not to read. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite conversation or memory from when you went to office hours? Anything that stands out? Hmm. That's an interesting one. So I actually have lots of good memories from going to office hours or from talking to my professors, both in undergrad and in grad school. I, I'm going to pull two in particular. One that I just think is hilarious from undergrad and one that I felt was really meaningful for me as a graduate student. So in undergrad, I was talking to my advisor, Andy Ziggity-Masek, and uh, we were discussing, I was planning to take Greek again the next semester, and he was going to be teaching that course, and he was trying to decide what he was going to put on the syllabus. And I said, oh, anything but Thucydides. And he just got this look in his face, like, oh, we're doing Thucydides now. <laughs> For which I have thanked him. I actually love Thucydides now. So you never know. You can shape the course of your learning in ways you don't expect. And nine times out of 10, it's going to be positive. People want to help you, even if they don't understand what they're doing. And then one meeting that I had in graduate school, I was talking to Professor James Uton. And uh, we were talking about, you know, what I was going to do with part of our the PhD program was you know I mentioned that I had this other project other than Sappho which was on Roman tragedy uh, we were required to do a special topic project in the other language so I was kind of in this formative meeting with him about what I was going to do in Latin because you know my my initial thing was oh well I love historical linguistics I'm going to work on you know those lovely ridiculous inscriptions that we don't understand <laughs> from like before before we get like the the revolution of of roman literature and and that was kind of shot down because we didn't think that anybody would want to take a class on it in my supposed future career as a professor i was talking with james and we talked around like a couple of things that we thought would be fun like one thing i thought is i love board games and there is this late latin poem that is an ode to a board game and a board game night. And it just makes me so happy that this exists. And like, I was, I was trying to talk around that. And he goes, well, he had taught my, my Roman survey course. And he's like, well, what out of the survey course really stuck with you? And I'm like, Seneca's Hercules Forens. When Juno comes out and she is just 
raving about how the sky is full of constellations of Zeus's paramours and she's come to earth to get away from them and I just love it I love it to pieces you know like this moment of both of us getting really excited about Hercules Furen's proem <laughs> and just those moments that you get where you and a professor connect over a topic you know, it happened to me when, you know, I was discussing a Sappho fragment with my dissertation advisor. It happened to me when I was talking about Astatius's Thabayad with, with Anne Mahoney. You know, I was taking class with her. And I love that moment where I can connect with a fellow scholar, someone who knows more than I do. But then again, I might have a totally different idea about something. And that's the thing is like people think, oh, well, it's classics. Everything has been done. But that's not true at all, because every new person brings their own ideas, their own worldview to a topic. And, you know, you never know what you might uncover. I still I, I hate the Aeneid. I do. But I still have this idea. Someday I'm going to come back to it about how the trajectory of the Aeneid is a tragedy in which Aeneas becomes a god and that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, wait, now I, yes, please go back to it because I also hate the Aeneid. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, every time I look, like I under, I do as I have my scholarly opinion and then I have just my like, I'm just that raging Hellenist who's like, it is a shitty copy of Homer just in reverse order and shorter, like, sorry. <laughs> like, yeah, just like, I know, I, I, I can, I can appreciate the artistry of it, but it's just definitely, no, it's never going to be in my favorite list. Yeah. So I'm like, no, there's, there are good things that like, I, I will say I go back and I do appreciate, I mean, the, the ekphrasis that they use, just mm -hmm. the descriptive elements that are quite, wonderfully done when seeing shields and armor and all this stuff but you know what I'm just like no it's no it's not it would it would not be something that I'd want to read very often unless I had to so uh probably won't read it again for a while and, and then the last question really I have is is you know why should students come to office hours and since you kind of touched generally on it I'm going to say you know when when you were teaching what was you know something you would argue about yourself for why your students should come talk to you the biggest thing that I would say to try and let students understand what office hours were for is I would say, I'm a person too. I have my moments of misunderstanding and my moments of anxiety. And if you ever have a problem, if you ever need help, if you ever have an idea that you just don't know how valid it is, I can be a sounding board for you. I'm not going to think that you're wasting my time. That time is for you. That's what I'm there for. And moreover, if you need an extension, if you are having trouble with a subject, there's no reason for you to suffer in that. Tell me about it. I can't help you if you don't tell me. Yeah, that I would agree with that 100%. And um, so as someone who loves poetry and Sappho, I'm really excited for this part. But at the end of each podcast, I have each guest read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And then after you read it, obviously, it doesn't need to be the longest, most wonderful, detailed, erudite thing you've ever said. But just like a quick analysis of, you know, 
why do we love this? Why do people like this poem? You know, does it, you know, what kind of valuable lessons does it still contain? Like, why do we still read it? And, you know, you know, how do you connect to it? I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. This is actually one of my favorite English poems, despite the fact that we do have quite a bit more of this particular Ozymandias. The sense of time is something that I think we lose when we don't look to history. And I think that's why the past holds such a fascination for so many of us. It's this foreign country. It's this unknown eternity. And we like to think of things that are this unknown as unknowable, as alien. And yet, even here, we can read the emotions, the human emotions of some ancient king of whom nothing else remains, right? And I think that's one thing that I would love for people to take away from the study of the ancient world is that they were people just like us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love it. It's, I've made no bones about how it is my absolute favorite poem ever, uh, ever since I read it in either high school or college. I, I think it was high school. Let's be real. I don't remember though. But whenever <laughs> I first was introduced to it, I just really latched onto it and said, this is so interesting. And then coming out of college, coming out of classics, knowing it was written about Ramesses and loving Egypt. But then starting my career in politics, I was like, oh my God, this is like, it connects. And so, you know, it's very hard for me to see it as anything other than a very political poem by Shelley, just on the ephemeral nature of power. If we do consider this poem a political statement on the ephemeral nature of power and 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 consider it sort of a, a memento mori a reminder that you know we will die you know the the very last question I, I like to ask all the guests is you know if you consider our contemporary society right now is there like a modern ozymandias in our in our society in our world like what is something that we thought was so great which was amazing that it would last a thousand years but like realistically in the future are we going to look back and be like, the hell was this? Like, the fuck were we up to? You know, like, that was a stupid idea. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Um, makes me think about the way that we get new poems, or new to us poems, obviously. Like, you know, the way that we find a new Sappho poem we don't get it from like unearthing some treasure trove of a library that somehow survived all this time intact. We get it from garbage dumps. We get it from cheaply made mummies, like in the, in the wrapping, they'll reuse papyrus 
nothing that we have will survive in the way we expect. And I love that. That's wow. Yeah, that that is a really unique answer. I yeah, not heard that one. So I love that take. You know, I obviously need more than two seconds to ponder that. And I'm 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 guessing our audience will too, because I'm sure that they will have things to say about it. So that is where I'm going to leave it. And you know, if you have if you want to respond, um, go ahead. Actually find both of us on classics twitter would you please tell everyone where to find you on classics twitter sure i'm at brododactylos uh which if you are curious which many people are is sappho's dialect for the epithet so that's at b-r-o-d-o-d-a-k-t-y-l-o-s Great. And, you know, I, I guess, would, do you have any closing words about Classics Twitter? Why it's fun? Come join us. Anything? Oh, gosh, come join us. You're welcome. If you want to be an independent scholar of classics, this is the place for you. If you are interested in the future of classics communication, as I put it, classics pedagogy, or just want to make fun classics art, those things are all super welcome on Classics Twitter, and you can always join us. We'd love to have you. There's so many great people to meet, great people who are on there. And I mean, the resources are just are vast. And, you know, if you need help, if you need something or want to find someone, if you put a call out, I found it so helpful because people will just refer me and be like, oh, you're looking for someone who studies this or who knows that. Oh, yeah, here, go here. This is what I have for you. So it's a great place. I know a lot of people shy away from Twitter because they generally assume that the Twitter is evil. I'm not disinclined to agree. I'm just going to say that Classics Twitter is like the small corner that I can handle because it's nice and safe and welcoming for the most part. Um, the rest of Twitter, I cannot be so complimentary about, but Classics Twitter. Wholeheartedly is. agreed. <laughs> but yeah, the Classics Twitter is nice. So come join us. We always want new voices, new people. And, you know, thank you so much again for joining me today. And oh, thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'll speak to you hopefully soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is present ponderings.